0: Really just a choice, right? You can even open both of them. Many of you know I love hard copies of the Bible, so I like to have multiple ones open there. So God is moving all over the earth, is he not? We're hearing stories of God moving in our country, in our region, and in our local church. And I just want to say again that this virus season will pass. Amen? this whatever this unusual season is and whatever uh, historians will look back on and call it i just want to say again and again the lord always brings his people through amen and i was i looked up the black plague of the 14th century where they had around 75 million people die and the lord brought his people through so i'm i'm grateful for that. Another thing that's evidence that God is moving is that we have groups going on even in an unusual season like this. And you can see at olcc.org backslash groups that we have a number of different groups for different walks of life. And uh, some of those are online. So if you want to do it from your home, you can. And the point of groups is to deepen your friendship with God and to deepen your friendship with one another. Form new friendships, deepen friendships. I want to let you know, too, some of the stuff that is going on with our staff. With the Milners leaving, I think it's important for you to hear updates. We had a really good staff planning and development day at the Westbrook's house this last week, last Thursday, and it was an awesome time together. Staff in here, was it not good? Really, really good, just a time of vision, encouraging each other, and it was, it was rich. So God is doing things in the core, the leadership core here, and we're learning new things about serving him and serving others. And if you're a leader around here, we talked about this, a leader is a servant. And so Jesus is the greatest leader who ever lived, and he served, and he served, and he served. So he gives us the model We also like to say around here that the Lord is mobilizing us as an army. We're not an audience. We don't come here and listen and watch and observe, but the Lord calls us to participate. Isn't that right, Hillary? Yes, I had Hillary come and and pray. So we're always ready to use our gifts to contribute, to care for the poor. We're going to be planting more churches in the future We're caring for prisoners, and when the prisons open up again for prison ministry, we're going to have growing prison ministry going on. We're going to be equipping leaders and sending them out all over the state, all over the region, all over the world, because God is good and God's on the move. So today, we're going to look at Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you want to open it up, we'll have it on a slide up here, and I'm going to read this very rich passage, and we're going to look at two things primarily. We're going to look at the fact that God is for us. Turn to the person next to you and say, God is for you. God is for you. And we're going to see that the Apostle Paul spells out what all that entails. God is for us. And a second thing we're going to look at that's related is that God's love in Jesus empowers us to conquer. Through the love of God in Jesus, we conquer and we're unstoppable people. Friends, we are unstoppable because of those two things. God is for us. The creator of the universe is for us. And he is lavish in his love for us, in his son. And we're going to see more about that. So I'm going to read Romans 8, 31 through 39. And we're going to meditate on this together. That's the point of what we, what we do here, is I want to invite you into meditation on the word of God. That's my role, to get you to look at it, to dig down deep into it, and hopefully whet your appetite even more so that you can go and throughout the week, devote yourself to the Lord through the scriptures. That's what we're looking at here. How do we dig in? What is he saying? And it's usually a very simple, straightforward message that he has for us from his word. So Romans eight thirty one through 39. This is magnificent. Paul says this, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not also with him give us everything? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who's with the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the word of God. The first thing that Paul says there, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 36, God is for us. Look at what he says there at verse 31 verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? Paul, what do you mean? What are these things? If you look back at verses 28 through 30, Paul is saying these are the things that we're supposed to have something to say about. And that includes many things. It really includes the previous eight chapters Paul is saying in light of these things what should we be saying about it and i just want to say friends we should have a an open-mouthed amazement <laughs> that is the response god you are unbelievable you're for us you're for me in spite of me and you're full of love And that is our response. And we should worship like we did this morning, friends. We have got a lot to be thankful for. Paul asks a series of questions here, at least four of them. And so I would just want to walk through. He's asking these questions and they're rhetorical questions, meaning that he already knows the answer. He's trying to get the reader to think through. And the first one, he asks there in verse 31, who is against us? And Paul's answer is, no one. Why? What does the text say? Verse 32. For God gave his own son and will give us all things. What's all things? What do you think all things means? 10% of what you need? 20%? Grant, 30% of what you need? How about 100%? And we like to think, well, this means spiritual things, right? Of course it does. It means salvation. It means being transformed in the image of Jesus. But it says all things, does it not? And you know what the Greek means? All things. So now that doesn't mean all things that we might think that we need. It's all that we need. So materially, spiritually, the Father is a good provider. And Paul is telling the church at Rome... No one can be against you. If God was so extravagant in the giving of his son, which is the greater, the greatest, then of course he's gonna take care of us in the lesser. One of the early church fathers, his name is Chrysostom, and it means golden mouth. He is so devoted to the word that every time he spoke, the word came out. And listen to what he says about this passage right here. Yet those that be against us, so far as they are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us causes of crowns and conduits of countless blessings, in that God's wisdom turns their plots against us into our salvation and glory. See how really no one can be against us. That's what Paul is saying here. Who can stand against us? Who can be against us? No one. What's the second question? It says there, who will bring a charge against God's elect? In verse 33, what do you think the answer is? No one. Again, Paul knows the answer. God himself. Why is this? Because God himself has justified us. What does that mean? It means that God looks at you and me and says, I'm making you right. Now, Paul, because he's appealing to the church at Rome, he knows that they know how a courtroom operates. And so he's using the language that would be used if you were before a Roman tribunal in a court case. And so Paul is saying, church, you are in the divine courtroom surrounded by God's holy angels, and there you are, guilty, until you're clothed in Christ. And because you're clothed in Christ and baptized in his name and part of his church, Paul says no one can bring a charge against you. God looks at you and says, you're right. Zach, you are in right relationship with the Father. This is the gospel. This is the grace of God. A third question he asks here. Who can condemn us? Look at verse 34. And the answer is, what's the answer? No one. Let's live like it. So who will condemn us? And then he explains. How can no one condemn us? What does he point to? The person of Jesus Paul is meditating on the person of Jesus. This is not abstract. Again, sometimes we grow kind of numb or accustomed to some of these words. We're familiar with them. Paul says, no one can condemn you. Now look at the person of Jesus. He's beautiful. He's glorious. Look upon him. What is it about him that Paul says keeps us from being condemned? He died for us. He was raised He was exalted, and where is he now? At the right hand of the Father, praying for you and for me. No one can condemn us. And he started at the beginning of this chapter. How does the beginning? Look back at 8.1. What does Paul say about those who are in relationship with the person of Jesus? No condemnation. So he's reminding them. He says, that's how we're starting. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you get down to these deeper verses at the end, and the bookend of the chapter is once again, no one can condemn you. And friends, there's lots of condemnation waiting to happen. The great condemner, Satan, you know what? He can't condemn you. If he raises something up, you can say, I'm in Christ. I am clothed in Christ. I've stood before the judge of all the earth, and he says, I'm right. Deal with that. And so, friends, no one can condemn us. Our spiritual enemies, no one can oppose us. We'll see more about that. Our sins, how about previous sins? The enemy reminds us. Do you remember when you did that? Do you remember when you got into that? Remember when you were addicted to this? And we can say, be gone. There is no condemnation here. I am in Christ Jesus. I am new. Amen? A fourth question here. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And again, Paul knows it is no one. He'll explain this further in 38 through 39 because Paul is very concrete when he says that. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He's gonna list out some things that might potentially separate us. Here he lists seven things. He's thorough, isn't he? What are the seven things? Hardship, distress, Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. It's like they get more and more extreme as the list goes on. Then he quotes Psalm 44, 22. And he basically says to God, we are killed sometimes. We're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. We follow the lamb, friends. He is the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And we're his sheep. This comes from the psalmist. Isaiah talks about the same thing. If we follow the Lamb, we should expect to experience some persecution, some pushback. Paul is speaking to the first century church, bracing them, preparing them, literally some of them, to lose their lives. Why do you think Paul lists these things, these seven things? Look at them again. Why do you think he lists them? Because it sounds good. It's compelling. Paul lists these things because he lived through these things. Esther mentioned that a few weeks ago. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 27. It's not on a slide, but I'm going to read it to you. Paul lists these seven things because he lived through all seven of these things. The apostle says this in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, and 27, and then in chapter 12, 10, I'm going to read it. Paul says this, five times I have received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters. You getting the point? Toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. How's that for a resume? And he's not done. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says this. He says, I'm content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's point here, he's lived through it, and now he's telling the Romans that they can too. They can survive anything, nothing, no suffering, not even martyrdom itself could stop Paul. Paul was a man in love. Did you, do you know what happens when you're in love? You're unstoppable. No one can stop you. If you're in love and you're locked in, and what happened to Paul? On that road, he encountered the resurrected Jesus, and it ruined him forever. He said, ah, oh, I was putting to death your people. I hated you. I opposed you. You forgave me. His heart was melted. He was transformed. He became a lover Of Christ Jesus and the greatest apostle that's ever lived the love of God in Christ Jesus entered Paul's heart like a flaming fire that could not be quenched and he was unstoppable so friends is this experiential knowledge of God's love in Jesus just for someone like Paul just for people in the past or is it for us too what do you think it's for us too isn't it that's right It's for us. Now, as I was looking at this this week, I was thinking of contemporary people that I'm aware of through their stories, maybe through friends, and I was thinking of the person that Dylan Springer, friend of mine from Bridgeway and Brad Kilman, and I think Houston went as well to India, and they visited a man named Gulzar. And Gulzar is serving Jesus in the mountains of India. Where's Dylan? Dylan, why don't you come up here? I'm going to have you talk about it. While Dylan comes up here, Dylan Springer, he's an elder over at Bridgeway, and we're glad that he's here today. And he's glad that I talked to him about this, right? We didn't talk about it. So what I want you to do, you've just shared some stories, and Brad has shared as well, about Gulzar. And he is living this kind of thing. He is in love, is he not? He's in love and he's unstoppable. So I wanted to ask you, what exactly is Gulzar doing? Something is fueling him. What is he doing? And then I want to ask you, how has his passion affected you? So tell
1: us a little bit about Gulzar. It's okay if we use his name, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Gulzar, quickly, real quick, was a guy who grew up in Kargil in India A Muslim family, his family couldn't take care of him. A Christian woman took him to an orphanage, and he learned about Jesus and still rebelled, ran away from there, came back home, and his family didn't want him. They had kind of moved on. Um, And a Christian man kind of took him under his wing and loved him, and he saw the love of Jesus through that, learned more about that. And so now he's back where he came from. And his heart is to tell people about Jesus and, and make Jesus known. So he travels um, every weekend, every week. He goes hours and hours out into these villages and just sits with people and gets to know them and loves them. And it is the light of Jesus to them. And so right now, this very week, they are building a, uh, a training center there. And this has been his dream and the the vision that God's given them for that area. So they're building a training center because when someone comes to know the Lord there, they are greatly persecuted. if you come to know Jesus there, they're kicked out of their homes, family disowns them. So he'll take them, and his his dream is to take them to this training center where they can stay and learn about Jesus and be taught and loved, and then back into their world to share that light to more. and it's, it's changed my life, I think. Rad would say the same. Just knowing him, seeing what the Lord is doing, it's so different than what it's like here. Um, but one thing he, he always said that always rings in my ears is, you've got to have vision. The Lord gives each of us vision. And without vision, we fail. And so that is in each of us, in each one of our lives. God has this plan for each individual and this each vision that he's given us. And we've got to be asking, and we've got to know what that is, or else we fail without Jesus and His truth.: is that good?
0: Thanks, brother. Thank you. So there are people today in unreached people groups. You heard what he said. Usually you lose your family. if you follow Jesus, whether you're in an Islamic context you're anathema, you're cut out of the family, or maybe a Buddhist country in context, you give your life to Jesus, it's costly. Can cost you your marriage, can cost you your family, can cost you your life. So I think Paul is wanting us to see what was fueling this. It wasn't determination, friends. It wasn't that Paul was gritting his teeth and going, I've got to endure this, or I've got to please God. And stay faithful. Friends, he was in love. The love of God was burning in his heart. And eventually, he went back to Rome and was put to death. And friends, he wrote over and over again. He was so enamored with the person of Jesus. So in love that he counted it joy. I read it. I say, that is so foreign to me, but Lord, would you work that in to my heart that I could actually be so in love with you that when suffering comes my way, somehow I'm finding you joyfully in it. A second thing that Paul is talking about in verses 37 through 39, God's love in Jesus. And he's basically saying, this is how we conquer And we're never separated from this. So look at verse 37. What's the first word there in your text? No. Paul is basically answering all of those questions. Who can do this? Who can do this? Can this happen? Can can you be separated from the love of Jesus? And so Paul begins with an emphatic no No, it is not possible. Will any hardship, extreme suffering, or martyrdom itself separate us from God's love? Why? What's he say at verse, the second part of 37 there? Why are we unstoppable? Because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul likes to make up words, and he does that in this text the more than conquerors. He likes to take Greek words and squish them together. Makes up his own word. And so you know what he's saying here in this, with this Greek word? He's saying you are a super conqueror. Hey kids, listen to me. Paul is saying here, if you are a Christian, you're stronger than any superhero. You're a super conqueror. What's interesting, hasn't he just talked about sheep in verse 36? He's basically saying you are a conquering sheep. You're a super conqueror. You're one who conquers overwhelmingly every time as a sheep. So you conquer through gentleness And you conquer through love and you conquer through sacrifice and you conquer in the unconventional ways. The world calls it crazy, but it's the way of Jesus. And we conquer not on our own, but how? What's it say there? Through him. So it means that we are super conquerors in the way that Jesus was. The way of the cross. Through him who loved us. So, really, this subverts any idea that the church is called to conquer, to dominate in a political way, any ideology, any human strength, any human leader. This pulls the rug out from all of that, friends. We conquer through union with the suffering servant. No military power, we lay down our lives. When he mentions this too, he's saying that we conquer through him who loved us. We saw this earlier in 828, didn't we? We saw that all things work together for good. How? For those who love God. So Paul cannot get away from this. All things work together for his people if you love him. And Jesus loves you and he's pursuing you relentlessly and you can't be separated from him. So this whole thing that we're talking about, Christian discipleship, life in the kingdom, is through him, through him. Say that together, through him. through Him, We are a through him people. We're a conquering sheep through him who loved us. Look at what he says. He bases what he's saying here in verses 37 and following on his own testimony. Look at verse 38. Does he say, for I've read this in books somewhere? My friend is convinced. What does Paul say? For I, I am convinced. This is in my blood. This is in my bone marrow, friends. I am convinced. Those seven things I mentioned, I'm still convinced. No one can take this away from me. And then he goes on. Paul is laying it on in this chapter. He lists 10 things. Let's look at them here. He lists tens of th- 10 things here, most of them in pairs. And he's saying, I am convinced that these things cannot separate us. So let's look at them here. What's the first pair of things? Again, we're meditating on the scriptures together and what you can do Monday morning, Tuesday morning, you can take passages like this, good study Bible, and pray it. Say, Lord, speak to me through this. Let your word come alive. I want to pray your word. I don't want to just study it. Meditate on it. So death and life. Paul's going to cover all his bases here. Death and life, he's basically saying physical death of any kind, including martyrdom. And then he says, life itself can't separate you. What's the next thing he says here? Another pair. He's clicking through all of the created order. Everything in creation. He says, angels and rulers and powers, these cannot separate you from the love of God. In Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by this? He usually uses the word angels when it's something good, something holy, a servant of God, and then he uses rulers and powers. Where does that sound familiar from? Book of Ephesians talks about rulers and powers. So Paul is saying, no angel could get between you and the love of Christ and no demonic power And when Paul mentions this in Ephesians 6, 12, he's basically saying any demonic power that operates through any governmental system cannot separate you from Christ Jesus, from his love. What's the next thing here? What's your text say? Nor things present, nor things to come. Basically, nothing in the now and nothing in the future can separate you. This is good stuff. You with me here? This is good stuff. I love this stuff. I preach it to my own heart regularly. You should too. How about the next thing? Height and depth. Now this is strange. Of course he literally means height And depth. Wow, that was a profound statement, wasn't it? He literally means spatially height and depth. Paul oftentimes bridges the Jewish world and the Greco Roman world. So, where do you think you've heard this language before? Think of the Psalms where King David would talk about height and depth. Yeah, Psalm 139. He says that if I ascend to heaven, the highest place, you're there, Lord. And then if I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, which is a poetic way of saying if I die, and they bury me, and I'm down as deep as I can be, what's he say? The Lord is there. So this is rich, whether he ascends to heaven or he's in hell. You know what else it probably suggests here? Listen to this, this is wild. He may be speaking about constellations and the zodiac symbol that the Greco-Roman people were familiar with. Think about that for a moment. Maybe I got your attention with that. These people, first century, second century, were fixated on the stars, and they believed that there were gods, deities, affiliated with each star, and so Paul could be suggesting the expanse of heaven with all of its stars, all of these false gods are nothing. None of them can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know what he's doing? He's debunking the whole Greco-Roman pantheon all of their gods. He's reducing them to nothing right here, saying the love of God in Christ Jesus conquers all of that astrology stuff. Is that powerful? It's rich. And then what's he add at the end here? Just in case there's some person who likes to say, ah, you left this one out, Paul. You left this one out. You left it out. You've moved through every facet of the created universe, but you forgot this one. What's Paul say? Nothing else, nor anything else. He's being thorough here. Nothing else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So really, this is the pinnacle, the high point of the whole chapter. It's interesting. He said at verse 35, he talked about the love of Christ. And what's he say here? The love of God. For Paul, they're joined to be loved by Christ is to be loved by God. I almost fell there. Almost tripped into Brad's arms. That would have been interesting. Wouldn't it, Brad, would you have caught me if I tripped and fell? Oh, thank you. Good. So what I'm hoping is that this reality will take root in our hearts like never before and that fear will melt away because Paul was fearless. Was he not? He could face all of these things And because perfect love had entered his heart and driven fear out, he was fearless. I want to end with this, then we're going to have ministry time. But I want to read a story about a young lady named Perpetua. Let's say that, Perpetua. Sounds like perpetual, right? Well, it's related to the same thing. Perpetua was a lady living in the late 100s and up to 203. And I just want to read this. Can I read this? It's better if I read it a little bit and insert some things. We have little idea what brought Perpetua to faith in Jesus or how long she had been a Christian or how she lived her Christian life. But thanks to her diary that survived, we have some idea of her last days, an ordeal that so impressed the well-known St. Augustine, that he preached four sermons about this woman. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who at the turn of the third century lived with her husband, her son, and her servant, Felicitas, in Carthage. It's North Africa. At this time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian church. It's no surprise that the emperor of the day Severus, determined to cripple Christianity, and he focused his attention on North Africa where she lived. And among the first to be arrested in her town, there were five Christians, one of whom was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison after she was arrested. He was a non-Christian, a pagan, and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself and he entreated her to deny that she was a Christian she said this to him father do you see that vase over there the vase full of water could it really be called by any other name than what it is a vase and the father said no and she said well neither can I be called anything else other than what I am. I am a Christian. In the next days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed to breastfeed her child. That's right. She had a newborn baby. And with her hearing approaching, her father visited her again, this time pleading more passionately, have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, and he throws himself down before her and kissed her hands, please do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. Friends, Pleading. Perpetua was touched, but remained silent. She tried to comfort her father. It will happen as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in God's power. And he walked out of the prison, dejected. The day of her hearing arrived, Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor Perpetua's friends were questioned first and each in turn admitted to being a Christian they wouldn't stand down and each refused to make a sacrifice to the emperor which is what you did in that day. The governor turned to Perpetua, it was her turn. He was probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother and said, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby." She said, I will not. He said, are you a Christian? She said, yes, I am. So her father interrupted again, begging her to make the sacrifice and deny Christ. But the emperor, the governor, had had enough. So he ordered the soldiers to beat the father into silence. And then he condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave, her servant, Felicitas, were dressed in tunics. And when they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators were there roaming, waiting for them. And they didn't have to wait long. So friends, the love of God in Christ Jesus enters the heart of people and nothing can stop them. Happened with the Apostle Paul, happened with Perpetua. She went on to give her life, and people wrote about her. And I mentioned before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We can hear a story like that. The intent is not for it to be so heavy on you, but for you to see when the love of God in Christ Jesus enters your heart, you're unstoppable. And again, as your pastor, as your friend, I want us to do justice to the scriptures. And it talks about it over and over again, that we should arm ourselves and prepare ourselves spiritually to face opposition that the enemy might bring. And we don't want to be surprised. It may happen, may not happen. But we want to read stories like Paul's. And we want to read stories like Perpetuous. And we want to read the story of Jesus with new eyes. He's the martyr of all martyrs, the witness of all witnesses. Let's stand and and pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up.